You're listening to The Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of this show, along with Akram's Razor. On The Razor's Edge, we take investing ideas that Akram has been studying as part of his trading or his investing service, also called The Razor's Edge, which builds on his two decades plus as a prop trader and investment researcher. We break down the ideas, the research that goes into them, and what might go right or wrong in the future. We also speak with industry executives and other investors and experts to better understand the opportunities and trends in a given space. And I bring a generalist take based on a decade of investing and reviewing thousands of investing ideas and seeing how they played out during my time at Seeking Alpha. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out Akram's work on The Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace by searching for The Razor's Edge. If you have a chance to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or to share this with a friend, we really appreciate it. You can also reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Occam's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me respectively or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment or trading advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to a given episode. The kids are taking everything over. It has gone from a garbage market to a kid's garbage market. Only the kids would buy this kind of garbage. You can do two things. One is, you can come to Europe with me. John Aspinwall has a new place in London and Teddy has his boat off Nice. Or we could go to Japan. It would be good for us to get away from the madness for a while. The only other thing you can do is find yourself a kid. That's from The Money Game, the pseudonymous Adam Smith's book chronicling the 60s stock market, its own bubbly bull market period. It's a funny book, and if dated on the edges, its core insights about market behavior still resonate. On the razor's edge this week, we find ourselves a guest one better, a young investor who is also a SaaS salesman. Known as Wall Street SaaS Bro on Twitter, his handle, he's a 25-year-old living in New York City. He spoke with us on Friday, August 28th about his background and story, which is a good one, but also what he's seeing in New York and what he's seeing in the tech sector especially. It's a wide-ranging conversation, and I think there's going to be a lot for you here. Before we begin, quick disclosure, I'm long PagerDuty, Dell, AT&T, and Google. Akram is long Slack, PagerDuty, and Twitter. We didn't get a specific disclosure for SaaS, bro. Also, I want to thank B245445 and Papa G3 for leaving us kind reviews on Apple. B245445 said the information and arguments are incredibly interesting while Papa G3 called out Akram's lucid global insight, saying it was fundamentally genial. Thanks and merci. Your support is huge for us. Okay, let's set the mood. You're not as smart as I thought you were, buddy boy. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. I've been in this business since 69. Most of these Harvard MBA types, they don't add up to dog shit. Give me guys that are poor, smart, and hungry, and no feelings. You win a few, you lose a few, 
you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog. There's trench warfare out there, pal. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Gordon. How's Larchmont treating you? Fine. How's the Praxar deal going? Oh, you should know, pal. Asshole. And inside here, too. I got 20 other brokers analyzing charts, pal. I don't need another one. See you around, buddy. I am not just another broker, Mr. Gecko. If you give me another chance, I'll prove that to you. I'll go the extra yards. Just one more chance, Mr. Gecko. Please. You want another chance? Fucking A. And you stop sending me information. And you start getting me some. All right. We're joined today by Wall Street Sasbro. Wall Street Sasbro, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being on the show. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Just to start off, before we started, you mentioned you're in Midtown Manhattan. What do things look like? What are you, what's it, you're back in the office, like what's the on the ground feel right now? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would say maybe two or three months ago, it was completely dead. But now I'm starting to see things come back a little bit more. Really, for my company, nobody's actually allowed to be in the office. So I had to get VP approval to actually come here. I mean, for me, obviously, you know, I work in technology so I can work remote, but I just can't do it. I can't work, you know, in my room, my apartment in Brooklyn. I just can't do it. So I like to come to the office and uh, we're right next to Bank of America Tower here uh, in Midtown. And there's not a soul in the whole building. It's really only me and like the front desk guy. So did you at least get him a coffee when you came in in the morning? Every day, man. Every day. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. That's actually, you know, like that's that's kind of why we're having you on here, Sass, bro. The idea, obviously, is to kind of get a pulse on on on, on the ground floor of both what's going on in SaaS. You're you're in SaaS sales, and also uh, we've done a little bit on the work from home. Obviously, we went over in terms of whether what you've listened to, but we had Superhuman on. We, we, a big theme for us, obviously, has been we spent a lot of time on Slack, PagerDuty, some of the SaaS, Zoom, obviously, uh, theme names for work from home. But we did get into a little bit in terms of discussing what it's like working from home. And you've just kind of opened that up. Like you don't like fucking working from home, which I w- would be thinking the same thing if I was. How old are you? I just turned 25 in May. Exactly. So, you know, I li- yeah. So I'm 42. If I was still 25, I would not want to be working from home either. I mean, you and I discussed this a little bit. So it was kind of part of the impetus, Daniel, of getting him on the show here. Me and Wall Street Sasbro have connected over Twitter. He's a bit legendary with his uh, sales tweets and, and, <laughs> and, and, and gifing and, and movie quoting. So I thought he was uh, some old-time enterprise sales guy. Turns out, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a kid with a fire in the belly. So why don't you give us a little bit of a background, Sasbro? I'll let you take it from here. Give, it, give us your, uh, you know, your five-minute elevator pitch. Sure, absolutely. So just a little bit of a background on me. I actually never wanted to work uh, in sales. I really wanted to work on Wall Street. So from day one, I'm like, you know, who's making who's making the really big money here? And it was all the big managing directors on Wall Street, because I'm from Massapequa, New York. So it's a pretty, you know, decently high rent district. And a lot of my neighbors would commute to the city, they, you know, they were managing directors at Deutsche Bank and BNY Mellon, all these big banks, and they were pretty, pretty successful. So all the kids in the neighborhood, that was our goal. We want to work on Wall Street. But for me, I never got good grades in school. So once I was probably like a junior in high school, I pretty much figured out that I would never have a shot getting into a top tier school. All my friends went to, you know, Cornell University, Columbia. So they would pretty much had a bid into Wall Street from the beginning. 
So I went to a small criminal justice school here in Manhattan. I went to a CUNY school, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I went there to play soccer. I probably should have taken my education a little bit more seriously, but I'm one of those people that just like to get out there and, and you know, start doing. I've always pretty much had a job. I've been more entrepreneurial, I would say, than most. Growing up on Long Island, it's either all the kids are really spoiled and they, they're driving around in BMWs, or you, know, you have to bust your ass because your parents work in civil service. So my dad told me, he's like, listen, Tom, if you want to stay on Long Island and make money here, you got to go join, be a cop in the NYPD. So I was actually in the 2018 NYPD Academy to be a police officer. And this was around the time just so much craziness was going on. I mean, crime is you know, running rampant in New York and the pay is terrible. I mean, I looked at my compensation structure for the NYPD. They were offering me, I think, $45,000 to start. And then after five years, with the overtime, you, you could do like 98,000, right? And so I, I really didn't want to do that anymore. So throughout college, I had internships in sales because I couldn't get any internship anywhere else because my grades were so poor. So I actually started off at Enterprise Rent-A-Car and I was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on 83rd Street. And this was about sophomore year in college. And all my other friends are, you know, have summer analyst positions at Goldman Sachs, they're in sales and trading interns, summer analysts. And, you know, I thought these guys were just the best. And for me, I was at Enterprise, you know, I was a sales and marketing intern. So I'm thinking, you know, how can I get on the same level as my friends? So I'm like, all of these interns, they want like two to three minutes with the managing director. They want to make a real big impact. But for me, I'm at Enterprise and it's a big high rent district. So all of their managing directors are coming in to rent cars for me in the morning. So I had a really big interest in finance. So I would talk to people from Fisher Investments would come in. A crazy story I have is, uh, do you guys know who the Abraj group is? Mm -hmm. Do you remember them? Yeah, so I actually was dealing with the number one and the number two guy at the Abraj group. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was crazy. These guys would spend so much money. They had, yeah, you know uh, why? Because they stole it. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah. And so at the time, at the time, I didn't know that. And so I would ask them, I'm like, look, I'm in sales. I don't have the best grades, but I'm willing to work hard do you guys have any advice for me to get into finance? And the first thing they told me, they're like, Tom, you're a great sales guy. You take care of us because I would go so far above and beyond for these guys. They're like, you have to look at the sectors in the economy that are going to grow the fastest. They're like, I know you want to be in sales and trading, but that is in structural decline. You know, if you're in sales and trading at an investment bank, you know, you're not going to make the money like you used to make. So they told me, they're like, look, you got to get a commission paying job and you got to sell software. Fucking something good came out of a barrage, man. That is like that is actually good advice. Kudos to them. Sorry, keep going. No, for sure. I don't know if I want to say the guy's name, but I yeah, mean everybody. No, knows you it. don't need to. I have a perfect idea okay, of who you're yeah, talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, it's like the number one and number two guy. I mean, you know, but they were nice guys, man. They really, really, you know, sort of took me under their wing because I would do everything. I would go out of my way. I would pick up their kids from fucking school. I would shuttle them all the way out to Shelter Island. I would do everything and I wasn't supposed to do it. And I, I did that because I wanted to build a relationship. And also a lot of the people that would come in and rent cars for me that were doing well, they were all in sales. They were all salespeople. And this was probably 2014, 2015. So I would have you know, strategic account executives at Salesforce. They would come in and I'm like, oh, what, what does Salesforce do? What do you do? And they're like, you know, we sell CRM applications, we sell CRM tools, you know, they were telling me about the cloud. And I'm like, well, that's something I probably want to get into. And one time, one of the guys showed me, you know, what he was making in commission. 
And at the time, I didn't know about commission because enterprise, you don't pay, get paid any commission. And this guy was making like $35,000 a month as a strategic account executive at enterprise. I mean, at, uh, at Salesforce, just, just in commission alone. I was like, there's no way. So they're like, well, they, they said, look, Tom, you're a good salesperson. I've never dealt with anybody better than you. You have to go and apply to every single SaaS company you could possibly imagine. So that's pretty much what I did. And then that actually led me to working at a major telecom company, which is AT&T, which I was an account executive at. Because it's, it's getting very difficult to really break into the big SaaS companies. So if you apply to Salesforce, it's starting to turn into that weird investment banking culture where they only want the kids from Columbia, Cornell, you know, Harvard. That's sort of what okay. it's turning really? into now. That's interesting. Yeah. You wouldn't think of that because still, I mean, like you got like, I mean, just, I mean, coming off here on the show, obviously the personality resonates of, of, of a salesperson go getter. So, I mean, I would think again, when you go back to finance and, and wall street, like you said, sales and trading, investment banking is like that, you know, the old story. Like, hey, we want the, we want the kid who hustles. I'll take any, you know, give me these guys trading, but it does turn into a white shoe. You're recruited out of an investment banking class. Did you get into top 20 school? Like you said, and that was 25 years ago. So people were thinking the way you're thinking today, 20 years ago. And when I think about sales and software, no, you don't think about that at all. So that's, that's actually an interesting observation. Yeah, because I think what they're trying to do is, especially like a Salesforce or even, you know, an Oracle or, you know, the big like SAP or something, they want very highly educated people, you know, clean cut right out of college. They may not be the best salespeople and relationship builders right off the bat, but you can go in there with like a resume and impress them with your resume. And I think that's what it's starting to turn into. So if you really want to break into these industries, you have to be so ridiculously resilient. Like I said, I was never the best in school. I don't think I'm a stupid person. It's just, that's my personality. I just cannot stomach sitting in a, in a chair. I would rather go out and get experiences by talking to people, reading, or really doing it on my own. I mean, you do read. I mean, that, that book collection, you, I remember when you posted one on, on Twitter. I mean, you, you've definitely, you've digested some pretty good uh wall street finance investing history stuff no yeah and that's the thing because I'm, I'm i pretty much came to terms i'm like listen i'm never they're never going to take me at a big investment bank so i have to take it into my own hands so i would actually in two i think it was like 2016 2017 right before martin screlly went to prison he yeah. would actually he would do all of these live streams on youtube every night Yeah, i remember <laughs> yeah. And I would sit there and I would take notes and I would, I actually archived them all on my computer and actually go back and watch them all. Wow. And he, yeah, he was all about, he's like, look, it doesn't matter where you're from. Cause you know, he's from Brooklyn, New York. He's from New York, hardworking kid, went to Baruch college here in Manhattan, not a top tier school, but Baruch is a pretty good school for finance. So he's like, look, you gotta, the biggest things to look for are revenue growers, earnings growers, and they have to have a good product. And so he taught me how to go on sec.gov, look through all the filings, and I pretty much taught myself how to do all that stuff. So it's pretty much just like I got a finance class for free, just listening to Martin Screlly on YouTube. I mean, that's pretty, I, I had to take it into my own hands pretty you're much. Literally go, you're literally going for the most ridiculous backdoor mentors in, in, in Wall Street, Martin Screlly and the principal of a barrage. And <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> but I, I mean, this is, I, I was, I was hoping for gold. I mean, you're delivering platinum. <laughs> well, and here, here's the thing, right? Because you're in New York. I think if you're a New Yorker, you have 
it, what's called like New York privilege because we're around so many powerful people. So it really doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is. If you really try to shine and stand out and meet people, it, it could even be meeting somebody through like a live stream like that. And, and I think you can acquire and learn those skills, which are pretty much the same finance classes you would take at NYU through online. And that's how I heard about Demodaran, which is a big professor at NYU. And he's like the king of valuation. And Screlly's like, listen, you go to his YouTube page. He's like, if you go to his YouTube page and you watch every single one of his YouTube videos, he's like, that's just, it's, you know, you could get it for free instead of paying $50,000 a year to go to the school, which I could never get into anyway. But, you know, you sort of have to find those backdoor things to learn about finance. I may not be an expert, but, you know, I probably know a decent amount and I could, you know, apply that to real world. Yeah, you, you, know, you, you, good, trading, you, goodwill, like you goodwill hunting it. I got a, I got a number. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I, think, I think it's better for sales. Like a lot of people tell me, they're like, you know, how do I make a lot of money? How could I go out there early and young and, and make a decent living? And it sort of like flipped the script because my friends, you know, I have a friend that sales and trading at City. I have a friend that sales and trading at Goldman Sachs. And we make very comparable amounts of money. And, you know, last Does year- that piss them off? Oh, it, it pisses them off like crazy. But, you know, we're all <laughs> friends. And that's why the joke is like, your Malloy is like, you know, my last name is Malloy. They're like, Malloy's the sass bro. You know, you don't know anything. You're stupid. But I'm like, you guys are working 80 hours yeah, a week, you know, fucks. 100 hours a week. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, if you actually do the math, I'm, tell, I'm talking to all my friends. I'm like, oh, per, per, you, per average hour income, you're crushing them. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, dude, I'm like, you guys are, are pretty much making 20 bucks an hour, you know? And, then, and they're waiting for their like 30 grand bonus at the end of the year as a first year contractor, as an analyst. So, you know, we tease each other, go back and forth. But if you can really get in the right vertical at the, like probably a SaaS company that's doing maybe $100, $200 million a year in, in revenue, and you can get a good comp plan, I mean, you can really freaking blow it out. Like you can really rip the face off of that plan and make 350 to 500 if you're a top performer. And it's possible, it's out there. Uh, Sasper, how did you go from, you're at AT&T, which is not really in that category as far as, you know, I don't know what else they would sell that would count as that. So what, what, did, you, what did you get from that and how did that get you, how did you redirect to where you wanted to be? Yeah, so that, that was another thing, right? So when I wanted to break into SaaS because I knew how much money that there was, the advice I was given was if you can't break into SaaS because they want the college degree, they want the good grades, try to break into a telco, right? So the big players at the time, AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, and they actually have, I was an account executive, so I would be in small business sales. And what a lot of people don't know is if you're an account executive at, let's say, AT&T, they have a gold partner contracts with Microsoft, Google, Soprano Design, Samsung Knox, all of these solutions that are actually SaaS based that we could sell to the customers. So for example, if I go into like an accounting firm or a home healthcare agency in New York, and I say, you know, let's have a 15 minute meeting. I'd like to sit down with you and I'd like to give you a complete audit on your IT infrastructure. It'll be completely free. They're thinking I'm coming in there to talk about cell phones and wireless, but now I can take their entire IT infrastructure and put it on one bill. So I can sell them their 365 licenses. If they need an MDM to lock down their devices, I can sell them Samsung Knox or CodeProof or VMware Workspace ONE. There's a lot of different things that these telecom companies can do now. So if you really stress on your resume, 
Like I sold, let's say $52,000 uh, for the year in SaaS products at the company. And you can verify that you did that. You can then take that information and go to a real SaaS company and say, look, I understand that I was at a telecom company, but I've built my resume. I've showed that I can actually sell the value in these products and services. Give me a shot. And that's sort of how I transitioned that way. So not only selling telecom, but also selling 365 licenses, selling Samsung Knox, selling the EVV products, which is electronic visit verification software, which are all SaaS-based products. So if you can build that value prop and show that you can perform and not only sell telecom, but that as well, you can get a bid in any company you want. And that's pretty much how I did it. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's so it's sort of a reseller. You don't think about those big companies, but it, they have a reseller relationship and you figured out how to. Yeah, he's got the foot in the that. door, yeah. right? Channel partner. Exactly. It's all about the channel. And that's what, and I was actually in Vegas last week because I'm thinking about. So I had a job offer uh, at a big uh, communications platform as a service company. I think you could pretty much figure we out which we don't need to one guess, that is. Yes. Yeah, we had we had Captain Twilio on last a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, continue. Yeah, so they wanted me to jump on board to be an enterprise account executive for the healthcare market, and the reason why they wanted me to do that is because here, where I'm currently at now, I'm at a different major telco company, but I pretty much ran the entire New York State metropolitan area, selling into the hospitals, selling into the largest home healthcare agencies and nursing homes. So the solution that I would sell is a device with an EVV solution. So an electronic visit verification software packaged in the device. So I would roll out 10,000 devices because one of these big home healthcare agencies could have 8,000 home health aides. So with the HIPAA compliance and the new EVV mandate, every single home healthcare aide and every single visiting nurse, they're not allowed to clock in and out on a timesheet anymore with physical paper. So I took that value prop and I said, listen, let me come in. I'll sit down with you for 20 minutes and I could show you a way not only to increase your employee retention because you're providing these low income people with a free cell phone with unlimited talk, text and data, but now you're actually being compliant as well. So they can clock in and out remotely. They can go to the patient's house. They could say, hey, I, I administered medication and this actually takes out all of the fraud involved in the business because in home health care, what actually happened is a lot of these aides would never show up to take care of the patient. And if the patient had dementia or something like that, nobody would know. So it was a big, big issue. So Cuomo actually put a mandate called the EVV mandate, where you actually have to have GPS coordinates locked and loaded on a device to prove that the home health aide was there. So I took that and I pretty much sold every single home health care agency in New York State, well, the tri-state area, that solution. And Twilio... They wanted me to go in there and then sell their solution, the plat communications platform as a, as a service, uh, sort of like um, to position it like Everbridge. I don't know if you guys know about yep. that company. Obviously very familiar with that. I, I wrote a short thesis on it last summer, which I actually published. So where does that compete with Everbridge, actually? There's, you know Spock? Are you familiar with Spock as well? Uh, I'm not. I'm familiar with Sopranos. Those are the, the main three I'm similar, familiar with. I mean, Everbridge has done great with critical, critical events and obviously Absolutely. between, between yeah. the, sh the shootings and now the pandemic and uh, asset management, tracking your assets, essentially. They bought a company that actually funnels, it's, it's literally got like right out of college kids sitting in a room taking news data 
and turning them into threat assessment reports and, and feeding it into the, into the platform. And these obviously, they all kind of overlap with PagerDuty because that's incident management is, you know, they have, they, they have an IT alerting service. So when you think about Everbridge at, at, at the government and state level for, uh, for mass notifications, and then when you lap on Twilio, I mean, Everbridge is built on top of, like, Twilio is a provider there. So it's interesting. You're, you're actually, I didn't even realize, that, that, by the way, you're, that's a great vertical right now, man. It's a, it's a, it, I got so lucky. I mean, I mean you're, like, you're, you're knocking it out of the park in terms of falling ass backwards into uh, the, the right spot to be right now. No, I know. And it was, it was so weird because I'm not at the company I'm at right now, which October 1st, I'm, I'm going to leave to do something else. But I actually wasn't vertical specific. I was just, you know, I read a lot of like investors business daily and things like that. And it was all about, I read this piece about compliance, HIPAA compliance and healthcare. And I'm like, well, if I could just focus on this market and not deviate from anything else, you know, I could potentially capture the entire market. So that's, that's pretty much how I, what my go-to-market strategy was. But with Twilio, they want to really capture that healthcare market. The big value prop now and the biggest problem that I'm seeing from a lot of the CEOs of these healthcare companies is before a home health aide enters a home in New York State, they actually have to click a communication response to say, look, I checked my temperature, I don't have a temperature, and I, I can go into the home. And if they don't do that every time, the agency could get fined a ton of money. So if you times that by 8,000 home health aides, that's pretty much impossible to be in compliance. So what I was thinking is if you use a product like Twilio, where you can send out a mass text messages to the phones I've already deployed at the company, all you have to do is be able to, as the home health aide, say, yes, I checked my temperature, I'm good. And then the company can record that response and prove it to New York State that they're being in compliance. So Whatever sales rep takes that vertical, I think that they're going to do really, really well because it is a solution that these companies really, really do need. And it's going to, I think it's just going to revolutionize the industry between how an agency or a hospital communicates with their employees. I, I'm going to say I agree with you, Sasbro. <laughs> that is definitely, uh, that's, that's amazing. You're going to, you're, you're, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of people knocking on your door after this because uh, it's, a, it's a topic that, I mean, even Daniel with Justin, we were discussing service now and contact tracing, and obviously the cap, the cap is is all over this with respect to Twilio. He's even been looking at at investments in in the nursing home vertical. And I mean, with the pandemic, you know, I I've had you know kind of firsthand experience. My neighbor is is medical director of uh, of nursing homes and here in the in the Maryland area, and we discuss a lot of this stuff, the challenges and, and how he's had to adapt in, in this environment. You know, I mean, he's got like three designated COVID units. Uh, I mean, uh, I think they consolidated them, but I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and, and this is like, for those listening, if you haven't looked closely at the space over time, this is a space that's kind of been in the IT Stone Ages, right? When you think HIPAA compliance, Absolutely. when you talk about it, there's a company that's crushed it in this space that every short seller has gone after year after year. It's a fraud. It's not. It's trying to figure it out, which is J2 Global Communications. And they have eFacts and they've consolidated everything that is eFacts over the last 20 years. They just buy them up and, and bundle them in. And it's an incredibly high margin business. And they've done really well because what? Who's, who's doing, who's doing eFacts? It's hospitals and doctors still, 
right? Because when you think about who's still using a fax machine, I mean, virtualizing the fax machine, essentially, that's been a space. So what you, what, what you are in right now, I mean, is, and particularly when people talk about the, the terminology accelerated, you know, the COVID accelerated our digital transformation, I can't think of a space that like, it, it may have accelerated it for other spaces. In, in the case of healthcare and assisted living and nursing homes, you literally may have been hitting like the boot up button. Oh, for sure. And, and healthcare has probably been that industry, which is, was the slowest to transition to the cloud, just because of all the, the, the data that they handle. But I think once these big healthcare companies, not even really the hospitals or nursing homes or home healthcare agencies, but you know, you look at like the insurance providers or the payers. I think that's an industry that Twilio and all these other communication platform as a service companies really want to penetrate. Or even, you know, you could send out text messages to remind people to pick up their prescription. Or if you go to a doctor's office, then maybe they could text the customer via SMS, hey, you have a doctor's appointment at two o'clock today, don't forget. And you're probably going to increase the, the rate of people actually showing up to the appointments. So I think there's a huge value proposition here, uh, especially for those companies. I'm a huge fan of Twilio. I just think they need to get Jeff, Jeff Lawson is Mr. Developer Marketing. Yeah, but yeah <laughs> I know. you know, I mean, like that's the, you got to sell to developers, not just the, the C-suite. Yeah, I mean, and I was a little rocky on Twilio at first just because of their whole mishap with, you know, Uber. I think they were going to lose their contract entirely. I'm not really too sure what went on with that, but I remember it was a big mess. I think it's, you know, back on track now. I think it's, they're doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, look, Uber is... I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it turned out to be a lot more noise than anything else because of the size of their business and where they've taken it. But yeah, it's always been a risk, right? Like I can, I can build my own Twilio is the argument internally, right? I mean, you're, you're they're essentially exactly. aggregating the telcos. If I'm taking all the carriers and in every major market and putting them together and basically building a, a virtualized telco, we were discussing this the other day with, with Zoom versus Agora, me and a friend where Agora essentially gives you HD voice and they're not calling this real, real-time real enablement. If I want to stick a Zoom into my application and I'm building an application, I can get this API, SDK kit, whatever, from Agora and they'll give me 10,000 minutes a month free and I've essentially turned on, they've got 200 data centers co-location. They've built a virtual network with super low latency and, and packet loss, a la Twilio, by a guy who, by the way, was one of the original engineers at WebEx, which is where Zoom's founder came from. So very similar overlap, but you're essentially looking at virtualizing. And, and this is, I mean, Twilio actually aggregates with the carriers. They, they, they haven't built their own just IP-based video network, but you're seeing that. Like the Comcast guy, for example, you know, we had an issue at the beach house uh, on the Eastern shore and like, like the fix is video virtual. I mean, that's, that's kind of where you're going. And like, people are obviously very excited about that space. You know, your Twilio's, your Fastly's usage based, you're in a pandemic, everybody is stuck using this stuff on, at a much higher volume. But I mean, look, that, that, that's amazing. Let's, let's not get, uh, we, 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 there's so much we want to go through with you here, having you on, because we, like the, the idea was to, you know, Daniel, I, I, I sent, uh, I recommended uh, a book to Sasbro called The Money Game. I don't know if you've read The Money Game. It's an earlier recommendation. I think you, I think when you wrote once Yeah, it was actually recommended to me by, by, by a friend. One of the better recommendations that a person's ever made, made book-wise for me in the investment business, because it's just like, it's a collection of stories written by Adam, this pen author under the title Adam Smith, who is actually kind of like a, 
a major financial journalist from from the seventies, and like he's he's really kind of done this this book where he tells these like little tales from his experience, and you know I'm sure some is embellished a little bit, but there's a section in there which which he's really taking off of what you and I discussed but on that life article that you know that Liam that Lewin, Liam Lewin. Yeah. yeah, and the, the the late 1960s computer leasing bubble and, and that market, which was essentially very similar to today in terms of SaaS. Just a lot of enthusiasm around data, database processing, automation, and, you know, essentially being able to tap all that in by, you know, leasing compute time on a mainframe. When you think about AWS and, and, and Azure and the infrastructure players, then it was just different. You had IBM and like five other smaller, they used to call it Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. IBM was Snow White. And there was like, the six other mainframe players were the seven dwarfs the, or, or seven other players or whatever it was. But that market was a unique market and a lot of stuff came out of that market. And, uh, and we could go back to Xerox in terms of collaboration and, and like how bit, how fast and, and furious Xerox grew during the, the, the 1960s, early 1960s through 1970. The comparable is that that market got so speculative, so hot, people could believe anything. They're reading the trade journals and that Life magazine on that 22-year-old, you know, uh, savant trader at the time, Liam Lewin. By the way, Liam Lewin is a major fucking success story. Anybody who wants to dig up someone who's, who's he's, he's a guy who went traded and then started a tech tech company and he never missed a beat for the next 40 years and he continues to yeah so he didn't wipe out in the uh, in, in the in the 60s bubble he 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 parlayed it in uh, in pretty impressive fashion but the idea was is that in this book they do tell the story of when a market gets like this people who've been trading for a while can't relate to it as well I mean, I mean, you're seeing this on Twitter, right, SAS bro? Like people valuation, yeah. what the hell? Like, how is this happening? Bubble, 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 bubble. And I mean, it's been a while since there's really been a bear market, really, in terms of uh, there's been like many violent crashes that we had at the end of 2018 and, and, and then with this pandemic. But there hasn't really been a cycle where you obviously aren't old enough to remember this, but you know, Daniel, I mean, I think maybe a little bit, but like the post, like post, post 2000, I started trading in the late nineties and the, you, you thought you could, you could do no wrong. And now this is not, you, you can't make the same comparison here, but the idea was that when a market is like this for someone who's, let's say 25 years older, it's, you can either sit the market out as the guy says in, in, in the money game, you can t- sit the market out, take a European vacation is what he recommends at the time. Or you can hire a kid. Pardon the expression, kid. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, the idea is hire somebody to come up with growth stocks who is fearless and has the confidence that exists and can only be had without having the, we call it at this point, almost an impairment of, having actually seen a market blow up. Absolutely. So, yeah. which actually gives you some sort of level of trepidation and, and cautiousness, which makes it very hard to be like, I'm going to buy friggin' Zoom here at 30 times sales and watch it go to 100 because revenues are going to double or triple in a pandemic. It's that type of mind frame. So, and, we, and we've had some people on here, CEOs, founders, whatnot, but I also think the sales and you've given us a really nice background on yourself, which is just an amazing story, dude. Kudos to you. You've accomplished so much so far. But the background on being at that ground floor, which I really like how you describe, because 
when you, when you are coming out of school, you're, you're in the hunt, you're, you're dialed in, you, you, you know, I want to have that job at Goldman because that's, a, that's the place at the table. And I want to go from there to this, and I want to be in this city. And that's the mind frame in SAS also being similar, right? Like you were saying, right? Like, you know, the Salesforce job versus getting into a Twilio, they start being like the investment banks to a certain degree. Yeah. Once the revenues get like so fat, like, like Salesforce, you know, they start, you can really tell like a culture change. You can really, really tell it. So, but he, course, I just want to make one comment on, on the market. Yeah. This is, this is, this is what I think about the market because I, I'm a huge Bill O'Neill disciple, right? Like that's pretty much how I learned about the stock market is just reading how to make money in stocks. And every single weekend I just read the investors business daily. So if you look at all of these companies, everybody's like doom and gloom. Everybody thinks the market's going to crash. But if you look at the growth names, like the tech companies, like the SaaS companies, like, like Salesforce, for example, they just blew out earnings like an unbelievable quarter. So, I mean, money. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let, let me ask you this. Let's, let, let's step back. When you say I, the blew out earnings, I, I, I love the terminology and I'm, you know, I'm in workday calls today. I, like my Slack investment group is, is, is a party. Everybody wants to go to Vegas, but Let's think back for a second. Salesforce, which I can tell you, SaaS bro, I've been in calls every single time it's reported for like maybe the last three years, except for this past quarter. And the one other quarter, it went up over 10%. It usually does absolutely nothing. So Salesforce's quarter, when, when Salesforce reported last quarter, I had calls. And consensus was like 20.7, 20.8 billion for the top line. They came out and they, they basically pulled that down to 20 flat. Yesterday, or well, sorry, Tuesday, when, the, when they reported after hours, and the same day as Dow Jones' fucking bullshit inclusion, doing that uh, on the day of earnings, which actually is the only reason I didn't punt the, the earnings trade and options on the, on the weeklies, is an interesting dynamic because they just raised guidance back to where it was in May. Okay, Now, let me tell you, when I bought it, the 180 calls in May, the stock closed that the next day at 177. Now they've taken the guidance back to where it was in May, and we reported the end of May, and the stock is what two seventy seven. So you're talking what sixty percent? Yeah. So sixty percent, and we've like we've gone nowhere, Sasper. I, I as know far it's crazy, as but yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, but, but the thing is, like, it could all be dog shit. Could, everything could be bullshit, but. It's like, what, what are these big institutions going to buy? Because they have to invest money somewhere. You know, they're going to invest it into the companies that are growing their revenues at 20, 30, 40% a clip. You know, I mean, I agree. That, that's I mean, where that's the money is going to flow. I mean, it the may money be is going to flow. The, the, yeah. the money is going to flow there. I, look, I, look, Salesforce has always traded at a low multiple. I mean, it's, it's always been kind of annoying, right? So, I mean, they're doing a lot of acquisitions, but he's compounding around 20% typically. And it's been, it's trading around 10 times sales. I mean, that was, that's where it was when it went into earnings. So for it to move 26% in a day, I mean, is a huge move, but it like takes you up to 12 and a half times sales. There's right now there's 25 names trading over 20 times sales. So Salesforce at 12 and a half times sales would have been where Workday was in 2014 when Workday was the Zoom of this market, which is now waiting for Snowflake, which is going to be the new Zoom. Yeah, when is Snowflake? Didn't they just file for IPO? Yeah, they filed. They we should be getting it anytime in the next three, four weeks. I mean, I, I would, I, I'm barring the a, a global pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much my take. I mean, you, and you look at companies, even like a Square or something, right? They, they're growing revenues like crazy, but a lot of people just think, oh, these are payment processors. But what I think who's going to be the big winners going forward are the people or the companies, rather, that collect the most data on people. Right. right. So, so think, what, 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 like your, da- your, your day-to-day life, we've got you here. You're 25. Like, what do you, what do you use day-to-day? Are you using cash app? Do you use Venmo? Yeah. It's, it's weird, man. I'm like, not, it's, it's not the typical like 25 year old. I don't really use any of that stuff. I'm just very observant. I mean, I do use Apple pay, but I really, I don't have Netflix account. I don't even have a fucking TV what? in my house. I don't, I don't have a TV. I don't watch TV. I don't watch any shows. So I'm probably not the best person. How the how the hell are you quoting all these movies? Well, I told you when I was in college, I had to take a, a class. I just wanted to get a good grade because I was like on the verge of not being able to play soccer. <laughs> you arbitrage yeah, your was, way into it. Yeah, I was on the verge of not being able to play. Right, so they're like, you know, your GPA your GPA needs to be a certain amount to qualify for you know the NCAA or whatever. So I'm like, all right, I'll take a, this drama class, which actually turned out to be the class that I learned the most in. Because, you know, that, that movie, you know, with Alec Baldwin, he killed it. He blew it out yep. of the water. Glenn and Gary, so Glenn kind of Ross, a... bro. Not that movie. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. <laughs> you think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from downtown. I'm here from Mitch and Murray. And I'm here on a mission of mercy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. So I sort of like adopted that mentality just to be like, look, if you, the money's out there somewhere, you just have to figure out how to get it, obviously in, in an ethical manner. Yeah. And so that's, that's how I you know, learned about all those movies. That's all right. So you watch that. Then do you watch what? Like you watch Wall Street, like, you, you know, Boiler Room. Yeah, but there was another, like, we made, I think the main two movies we watched was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and then it was uh, Do the Right Thing, okay. which, which it wasn't sales related, but it was a, it was a great movie. It was, it was an amazing movie. Yeah. I love that movie. But, well, I mean, how about getting a television? <laughs> watching, watching some more movies. Yeah, I was just so, so busy during college. I actually started, I was commuting from Long Island every day and it was, it was burning me out. I was freaking so exhausted. So my brother, my brother went to Cornell University. So he had a lot of friends that worked on Wall Street too. So they had this small, small apartment right at Columbus Circle. Uh, and they paid, they paid so much money for this apartment, but it was four of them in there. And so my brother invited, I was a freshman at the time. My bro- brother invited me to a party at their apartment. And I'm looking around and I, I look in the hallway and there's this walk-in closet and it's a pretty big walk-in closet. And so I go up to my, my brother, Sean's friend. I'm like, Zach, are you using this closet? Could I live in this closet? I'll give you like 400 bucks a month. <laughs> so I gave him $400 a month. They used it to buy alcohol. And I just lived in their closet for the whole time I was in college. Uh, and it was right, it was, dude, and it was right next to the school because John Jay College is on 59th Street and 10th Avenue. And Columbus Circle, 59th Street, right there. So I could, w- I would wake up, I would go to work, I would go to soccer practice, I would go to class, and I would come home. And I, I was able to work so many hours because I didn't have to commute all the way to Long Island. So it was the best. But it, w- it was a crazy situation, and I was totally exhausted, but it worked out. Well, I mean, you've, uh, you, you, you've definitely done it the right way. 
All right, so let's. Yeah, let, I only let, paid twenty bucks. I mean, like that's 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 a great trade. You know, you you definitely should be a trader without question. <laughs> All right, but let's think about this. I mean, for 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 people listening, when you look at it, being in in software, selling software, seeing the demand, and we we've gone through your vertical, but let's talk about like. You know what, like you, you know, we're talking about a Twilio. Like, what do you use when when I think about you from a work standpoint on a day to day basis? Because we just went through you on a social basis. You don't even have Netflix, for God's sakes. I can't invest based on that uh, rationale. So, when we think about you from a a day to day selling SaaS, like, what's critical to you? Oh, so in terms of work, I, I could definitely talk to that. The most crit, and we actually just got this product about, I'd say maybe three or four months ago. And this product is so key. Like, I've never seen anything so amazing in my life. It's Zoom Info, ticker symbol ZI. Now, that we, um, our company just got a trial license of it. And it's a, pretty much a database that is so essential to salespeople because I could type in any company's name that I want. I can get the CEO, his phone number, his exact extension, his email address. And the reason why that's so important is because think back to that movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, these guys are making cold calls or even in any, in any salesperson's life, you know, you have to get through the gatekeeper, which is the assistant or the secretary. Zoom info has pretty much removed any gatekeeper from a salesperson's life. Totally, totally removed the gatekeeper. So instead of saying, oh, Hey, this is Thomas from so-and-so company. May I please speak to the CEO or the CIO? Then they say, no, 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 click. Now I could actually just send him an email or call him and get him on the phone. You know, that, that has been so key. I, I have set so many appointments like that. And it, I think that's just going to be a complete game changer. I think as companies, like if you, if big, big companies, let's say an Oracle that have a lot of salespeople, if they start using Zoom, I think their revenues are going to go through the roof. So I think Zoom is essential to my business or to any salesperson. Here we use Cisco WebEx, which I'm not a big fan of. I think it's a little bit, you know, choppy and cryptic -y, but it is pretty good for like product demos. But those are the main ones we use. And in terms of cybersecurity, we use Okta here. So okay. that if I'm, yeah, if I'm looking at, because this is what I do. I read, I read Investors Business Daily on the weekend and it's all about growth, 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 growth stocks. So I think, okay, at my company, it's a big company. They spend a lot of money. What stocks or companies are they using? Well, we use Okta, you know, we use Zoom Info, you know, and we're probably paying these people a lot, a lot of money. So that's, that's pretty much my investment thesis. I see, you know, in my life, what do I use? It's sort of, you know, like a Peter Lynch type thing. Yep. And then I just go back that's, and that's I how you look do it. In, yeah. And then I look and see if the numbers are actually Matching yeah, up Zoom, to Zoom what info I see recently, recently IPO. So you're basically saying that like anybody can sell once they have Zoom. It's like the Glenn Gary leads, right? I want the good leads. No, they, Zoom, they info, are the good, Zoom info is giving, it's dealing out the good leads. It's unbelievable. I don't even like when I first like got on the platform. I I'm like, how is this even legal? Like, how is this even <laughs> like? Because they have everybody's name, and not only that, they have direct links to their LinkedIn accounts. Like, it's crazy. So yeah, not only they've made, can they've I made have, your, They've yeah. made your job easier. I'm going to subscribe to Zoom Info. This sounds like a great tool for doing uh, investment research. The whole product is is the directory, right? It's just a massive directory of everything you need for any given target company. Is that the what you get? After? Absolutely. And, yeah, and the data is – there's so much data that's housed on that website. And you can actually 
make any adjustments you want based on what is the, you know, the revenue of the company. I can target by vertical. I think I could target by if the company recently went public, what their funding rounds were, anything like employee size. It's like really, really amazing. So if let's say if I'm a mid-market account executive or I'm an enterprise account executive, instead of going on Google Maps and looking up all these companies and figuring out, oh, does it fall under enterprise? Does it fall under mid-market? In two clicks with Zoom Info, I can do that. It's done. So it's, it's an amazing product. I love it. Yeah. And, and it integrates well with Salesforce too. So if I'm sending out, you know, leads or something, I'm so wait, integrated with Marketo. Are you, are, you, are you using Salesforce? Oh, every day. And it, to, okay. to like a fault, to a fault. Okay. So you we know, got your toolkit we, yeah. right now. We got, we got Okta Cybersecurity, Cisco yep. for video communications, uh, Salesforce for CRM, and, uh, and what do you want to call it? Broader management? What? Lead generation with Zoom Info. No, Zoom Info is doing lead generation. Yeah, Zoom Info lead generation, and it integrates very well with Salesforce. So let's say if I'm creating an opportunity, right? I just uncovered a new home healthcare agency. Once I type in the exact address and the location of the company, Zoom Info automatically will auto-populate more contacts. So are they the decision maker? Are they the decider? Who is that? Zoom Info will actually tell me who that is, and I don't even have to do any of the research. So it actually cuts my time in half updating opportunities and things like that. So it's, it's been a great product. Salesforce, I think is very necessary for a company, but 99.9% of the salespeople that I talk to, we all hate it because we, we want to be out there selling. We don't want to be crunching the numbers in Salesforce for our manager, but that's, that's part of life, I think. What about Microsoft Office 365 uh, suite? Are you using Word, Excel, anything? Oh, every, every day, yeah. 365 PowerPoint I use every day obviously for proposals. If you want to send out a mail merge, you know, you have to use Excel. Uh, you could sort by zip code, vertical, and then, you know, you send out a mail merge with Microsoft email, everything. So th- that's pretty much what I'm running here. But what I've noticed is if you, if you use Salesforce, nine times out of 10, you're going to be at a pretty big company. You know, if you use like a HubSpot or something else, you're probably at like a smaller startup company. That, that's, that's what I've HubSpot, noticed. I, 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 you know, I bought HubSpot right before the pandemic and like 180 had 200 calls and this fucking thing is not 300 reminding me yeah hubspot has a crm uh, daniel i don't know if you, you i'm you familiar, familiar with them with from a too, marketing I perspective i didn't know about the crm side yeah it's like it's it's yeah for like sales sales marketing i mean it's exactly as he described it yeah you're right i mean it's it's smaller medium versus salesforce being at the top I mean, that is one thing like you do hear a lot of people bitch about Salesforce. I, I saw somebody ran a thread about like, what would you replace if you could? And Salesforce exactly. definitely Salesforce. popped up there a few times. If you're a frontline salesperson at a company, that, that's the biggest meme out there. It's like we hate Salesforce. We hate using it because, you know, my manager sends me an email every day. Oh, you have to update Salesforce, update opportunities. You didn't hit your metrics quota for appointments ran. I'm like, well, you know, the reason why I'm not hitting the metric for appointments ran is because I'm actually on the appointment talking to somebody, you know, so. <laughs> Look, this is what started with, remember, when everybody went to Viva CRM is uh, the pharmaceutical sales reps, which is obviously a big place for, for sales uh, historically. Yep. They, you know, they were always bitching about Viva because once, the, once it went to the iPad and like, you know, they could actually monitor your location wise too. And you could track what calls you've been on and, and who you've seen and so on and so forth. 
Yep. That's I mean, that's one thing I'm thankful for is at my company, we we're not on a dialer. I know at a lot of other companies, like the, the big, What's that um, mean? Like, you know, explain the lingo dialer. Oh, so if you're on a dialer, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll have, let's say like a dial pad. You, you're obviously familiar with that company, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll have, they'll have a dial pad and they'll have their salespeople do a calling blitz, let's say for the first three hours in the morning. And this program on dial pad, it automatically makes the calls for you. You don't even have to dial. It's just, but you're forced to, to hit every single number and, and sit there for three hours and make cold calls. And it automatically dials the leads for you. It records your call. It tracks what you say. And it actually gives you a grade at the end of that. And that would make my life miserable because I can't stand being like micromanaged like that. But I have a couple friends that work for like ADP or Paycom or Paychex. And those yep. companies only use that. Like they are so freaking crazy about that. Oh, Paycom is like the boiler room mindset oh, of sales, it's, right? It's so ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, but there's that's been a popular stock among short sellers and it's obvious it's killed them all because it just yep. it just mints money <laughs> absolutely but but they do they do have a reputation for for being really tough for a sales guy to work at which is yeah. in, in similar to a stockbroker having to make tons of calls in the morning and and so on and so forth right yeah i mean i have a couple friends that that have worked at paychecks they were pretty miserable but the company i mean tom galasano is like a legendary ceo i mean i'm not sure if you you know like his whole story about how he built paychecks and all this stuff but he went he actually i think was working at adp or like one of the biggest yeah, so ones. Th- this is kind of yeah. the original service bureau sasbro this stuff comes out of that 1960s market where you essentially you said hey i i, I can't afford an ibm mainframe but like the service bureaus basically got one and they're like hey we'll, we'll handle your payroll you know, instead of like hitting the, uh, yeah. the, what do you call it? Uh, check out, like, what do you call it? When you, when you time t- clock out. Yeah. Yeah. Time punch, punch card. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like the next step. So the service bureaus did that. So, you know, ADP and paychecks have been the two monsters and uh, everything that's developed in SAS kind of since then has been kind of trying to chomp away at some of, at least on the HR and, and payroll processing side, whether it's Paylocity on the smaller end of Paycom, Ultimate Software, uh, which got bought out like two years ago to take in private. Uh, and then, of course, you know, your Workday, which is pure HCM. But yep. in terms of having a float in the payroll, payroll processing, you've had those two, Paycom and, and Paylocity, kind of ch- chomping at the heels of business on this, like, because they have so many customers, ADP and, and Paychecks. So he actually did to ADP what Paycom and Paylocity are trying to do to both of them. Yeah. And I think, and he was talking about in his book, I, I was, I just finished it. He's saying that his whole value proposition at paychecks was he, he went to, let's say, I, th- I think he did work at ADP and he's like, let's roll out payroll automation for small to medium sized businesses. And their big pushback on that was, no, they're not never going to be able to afford it. We, we can only go after the big, big companies. So he spun off and made paychecks. And if you go after small to medium sized businesses, the margins, the gross margins on that product, they're actually a lot, lot higher. Because if you're an ADP and you're, let's say, running the payroll for an AT&T, AT&T is going to be like, hey, listen, we're giving you all of this business. We're spending millions of dollars with you guys. You need to give us a discount. 
But if you go to like the little mom and pop shop as the plumber, you don't have to discount that product or service. And if you can get the land grab of all those customers, you know, the margins are going to be a, a lot, a lot better. And the customers are actually more sticky. So it was very interesting. Uh, if, you, if you have time, you should read his book about it. Definitely, uh, I will definitely take it, a it was, look. It was really, really interesting. Yeah. That sort of brings to mind, what are you seeing these days as far as the demand side of things? What are you seeing as far as we're in August now, we had obviously lockdown from March to, let's say, mid-April or May. Till Memorial Day, right? Yeah, there's still like, we're in this weird period where there's been no renewed stimulus. Like, what are you seeing? Are people, obviously there's the acceleration piece and you sound really bullish about that, but are... Are you starting to see any creeping like, well, we don't really know how to plan? Or are you starting to see any uncertainty creeping or anything else that is a note of caution for at least the near term? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because with me, obviously the vertical that I've been selling into is healthcare. So once this pandemic actually came about, I was, I was probably three to four times busier than I was previously because... New York State put out all of these different rules and regulations that they had to handle. And I was getting so many orders for like Chromebooks and, you know, all these remote working type things. And I was actually dealing with a lot of charter schools too. I think what a lot of people aren't understanding is that, yeah, you have consumer spending, which is just like everyday people that are probably struggling. But these big companies, even small to medium sized businesses, I think they're going to be forced to continue their technology spend. It's not that if they can do it, it's either they have to do it or they, they physically cannot do business. So that's what I'm seeing on my end. I mean, I had a blowout month last month. My, you know, I exceeded like 350% of my quota. And that was all from just order taking from existing customers. So like farming the base. And it's not because, oh yeah, we're thinking about you know, rolling out this new product or we want a new MDM. It was like, Thomas, you know, we need this. We have you know, yeah, 40 you more like remote working it up, people. Yeah. And it, it's all because a lot of these people have, they have to work remote now. Like I had a home healthcare agency that had almost, you know, 160 people on site in Brooklyn and they all have to work remote now. And, you know, as a home healthcare agency, you don't have, you know, all the, you know, SD-WAN where you can just roll out everything. So it was like, it was just like, you have to do it on day one. So it was totally, totally crazy. So I think it's going to continue, especially if COVID, if they don't really open anything back up. I'm in a, just to give you an idea, I'm in a building right across the street from Bank of America Tower, where usually on a summer afternoon, it is freaking mobbed. You know, we have Marsha McLennan in our building. We have D.E. Shaw, a big hedge fund in our building, and there's nobody. Everybody's working remote. So that really, really drove IT spending, not out of because we want to do it. It's, I think it's because they, they have no choice, so they can't run their business. So that's pretty much what I've seen. And I think that's probably going to continue at least. Uh, into 2021, if COVID continues this. Well, okay, so that's an interesting thing that you've taken us down this path, Daniel. So in terms of work from home, so like pandemic hits, like walk us to like just 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 give us a quick. What was your morning typical morning like pre-pandemic? Yeah, so I like to go out and see the customers. You know, a lot of people like to, you know, as a salesperson, they like to say, oh, you know, jump on a call with me at this time and this date, but to me that never really works because you know even for me you know i get i get reached out a lot by sales recruiters and i set the appointments and then when i see them calling i'm like oh i really don't want to get on the phone with this guy so i reschedule the meeting so if you go out and see these customers 
there's a higher you know ratio your close ratio is going to go way up so what i would do is i'd wake up probably around seven o'clock check my emails and i'd have five appointments lined up for the day so i'd take the train to the bronx brooklyn you know sometimes go over to staten island if if there was a big or a small hospital i needed to, to visit over there so very very customer focused client interaction uh, and then at the end of the day after i had all my meetings after i ran all my appointments I would come back to the office here in Midtown, and that's when I would do all of my, what I like to call the backend stuff. So I update Salesforce, I, lo I log all my opportunities, you maybe go on an internal call to see metrics with the management team and you know, what, what is the area doing. So my job, even though I can do it totally remotely and probably sell from over the phone and from my house, that's just not my style. So I, I'm very, very hands-on. So before the pandemic, I was always out visiting customers, always. But now, it's cut back a little bit. But it, again, in my industry, it's healthcare. So I actually have to go on site to some of these hospitals and do deployments for wireless failover or go on site at a home healthcare agency and you know, do a training on the new EVV product that we rolled out. And these people don't know how to use it. So, okay. so probably very different than the average salesperson selling maybe a car or something like that. Okay. So like but, when you think about that and then, okay, COVID hits, at what point did your company like say, you know, nobody in the office? Yeah. So we probably, we were, we went down to 50% capacity. So first of all, it was salespeople is, is automatically work from home because we really don't, we have all the tools we, we can use to sell remotely anyway. So we didn't have to come, we didn't have to come to the office, which at first it was great, but then it got really, really old really, really quickly, especially for me. I can't really speak for anybody else. And then it started to be, okay, all the HR people, you have to go home. And then I think they closed down our big headquarters in Kansas City. And now our company is still 100% work remote. If you want to come to the office at any time, you have to get VP approval to do that. So it's still, it's still you know, all work remote. But if you want to come in, you have to get director approval, VP approval. And I'm pretty much the only one here. Yeah. So, so in terms of engagement, you're still going out. You, you through like peak COVID. I mean, I, I know I discussed this with you briefly over Twitter. You were still seeing customers face to face. So you've got a mask on. You're what? Yeah. Like, how's it, what's you roll in? It's obviously the healthcare space. They're obviously super sensitive to what's going on. They're aware. Yeah, absolutely. Because I would have to meet with the IT directors of some of these big nursing homes. And a lot of my customers, I have the, some of the largest nursing facilities in the Bronx, which were the hardest hit by COVID-19. So they really needed to roll out everything really fast. Uh, you know, I did a lot of wireless failover stuff. So based on the vertical I'm in, I think I was seeing people in terms of customers probably the same amount. But some of my other colleagues that would focus on, let's say, the construction industry, or you know they would sell into consulting firms or something like that. Okay. It was their business was pretty much cut in half overnight. You know I think I think it's very very vertical specific and especially in terms of going out and seeing people because if you're in the healthcare space and you're doing a, a deployment the technology deployment you need somebody on site to do that and it's non negotiable because these people are essential workers so it has to be done. So yeah I would suit up in in the whole thing they would take my temperature I would try to limit my contact with people as much as possible. It was pretty nerve wracking because, you know, the media and the, this, the fear that was being shelled out there was just so crazy, you know, right at, right when the market was bottoming, it, you know, people were afraid to go outside. You know, people, everybody was, was, it was, I was. It was, it was pretty crazy. scary. 
But how are you commuting? I mean, you're in Manhattan. Are you using the subway? Yeah, I take the subway every day. Um, so so you were, so still, you were yeah. still using the subway throughout all this? I was, correct. But he, here's something I noticed. And since I think it's good that I took the subway all through, all through this whole thing, and I was taking the Long Island Railroad sometimes too because I, you know, I would help out my parents and all that stuff. But they, when, it, when this thing first happened, like peak COVID, there was literally not a soul on the subway. It was, it was so sketchy. It was, it was really crazy. I mean, it's and like now, 2 a.m. shit. I mean, I lived in Murray Hill, what, what, three years. So I was there pre and post 9-11. But in terms of, in ter- but yeah, I mean, like I, I would remember sometimes, you know, like late night, you know, coming back from a Yankees game or Queens, like at the time when I was covering, I was covering some banks in, in Queens. Like it's, you could, there would be periods where there's like almost nobody whatsoever on the subway. Yeah, but, but this was like something I've never seen before because I'd be walking the streets and you'd be in Midtown Manhattan and there'd be no cars. Yeah, so it's even like at one, sky. two in the morning. Yeah, it's, it was really, really strange. And so I now, you know, I, take, I moved to Brooklyn. I told you about that. So I actually take the seven train to Vernon Jackson. I walk across the bridge and I, nobody's ever on the seven train now. Like this That's morning, the seven, train yeah. was, the seven train was packed this morning okay pack all right that's that's a nice indicator i like that so you basically like you're obviously seeing that day to day right like it's (laughs) you're counting the bodies every day yeah (laughs) so you know it's i think with the past two months some people are starting to come back now i'm seeing a lot of people you know i'm seeing a lot of people may obviously not as much as as before but the seven train was packed even on the weekends the cities i see more tourists i think the volume of people are starting to move back but the only thing is I think the people who have like very high paying jobs here uh, at like the big, big companies in Midtown, you don't really see a lot of those people. I mean, I was, I was just walking down Park Avenue yesterday. I'm starting to see some of the, you know, the finance bros with their Patagonia vests come out of the woodwork now. <laughs> so I'm seeing like a couple people, you know, before I didn't see anybody. And, and starting in August, you know, these finance people want to throw on that Patagonia right away. So you see a sea of these people. I'm only seeing like a couple of them. So it's really strange, but I think by the time October and November rolls around, I think if you walk down Park Avenue, I think you're going to see Patagonia heaven again. So we'll see. I saw like they're talking September one rotation starting back up again in a lot of the Wall Street firms inside the city. I mean, is stuff like around where you are, uh, you know, are the Starbucks and everything open? Is it, like has anything notably shut down? You noticed in terms of the the F and B industry. A lot of the Starbucks are still open, but what I've noticed is a lot of the stores, they'll close at like, let's say nine o'clock, eight to nine o'clock at night, instead of being open till 11 or 12. But you do notice if you, especially if you go down like near the Bowery and Lower East Side, you see a lot of retail fronts that are like completely closed. Same thing on the Upper West Side. So if you're in like the eighties, you'll see some of the retail storefronts that are completely closed. But if you go out on the weekends, you see a lot of people doing the dining, dining out. So I think things are starting to come back. I think the businesses that had a lot more cash flow and a lot more cash reserves were able to stay open. But I think a lot of, a lot of small businesses went under. But the, the people who are open now, I think they're, they're making a lot of money because all the demand is flowing to those restaurants and those bars. So I think, I think it's a give and take. I think the people who are the most prepared for it are getting rewarded with additional revenue just from lack of choice or minimization of choice. That's really what I'm seeing. Excellent, dude. Daniel, any questions? Yeah. I mean, what do you, what, not to look too far out, but what do you, 
you know, there's a whole debate, which I can't believe that James Altucher managed to draw a response from Jerry Seinfeld. I don't know how that guy sticks around, but. Well, Altucher is the most resilient guy ever. I got into a war with him once on Seeking Alpha when he said Google was going to zero over Varenko. Oh, Do you remember right, that? Yeah, right. That, yes. That, that was when I started I mean, working at Seeking Alpha. I don't know where, where, where these guys come from, but I mean, he's actually quite, quite an entertaining character. He's been up to shenanigans essentially since the late 90s. People I've worked with but, speak positively about it. I don't mean to, I don't like to be negative about people. I just think. He has a talent. No, no, he's a positive. He's almost like a self-help like type of guy at this point. He's like, he's he's high energy, but he has weird stuff prediction. He, he likes to make really bold, crazy stuff. And when he did the Google's going to zero because of the Varengo patent thing on like a penny stock at the time, and I was like, dude, that's ridiculous. He he's he got into one of these. We I got into one of these like you know pre-Twitter right comment section wars where he just showed up and he started trolling me. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, there's a talent for thrusting yourself into conversation. And again, I don't want to be too, but so there's the New York's dying versus New York's coming back. My bias is that I don't know the time frame, but the great cities always do come back. And if you're really, if people are still super negative about New York six to 12 months from now, it's going to look really interesting as opportunity as well. But what do you, what do you, what's your take being somebody who's in the city? You sound, I'm hearing positiveness, but what do you think about the city, about it's somebody you've lived in Long Island, like you're from Long Island. What do you think about New York and how it's going to be? You've lived, you've lived in a closet, Sasbro. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he, that's, that's interesting too, because a lot of people, I think, let's say if you're, not, if you're not from New York, if you don't live here, if you turn on CNN, Fox News, it looks like the fucking world is burning. They see Black Lives Matter protesters breaking everything. But it's really, it's really, really isolated incidents. I mean, if you're actually feet on the street in New York, the media has to sell fear. And they think New York's going to be dog shit. I apologize for swearing, but, but they're like, it. you know, it, it's, it's never going to come back. And I don't think a city like New York will never come back. I, I just don't even think it's possible. I mean, there's always going to be people that want to live in New York, that want to be in the city. Yeah, is crime going up? You know, are, are things, are we going through a rough time? Yeah, I think so. But I think as people escape to, you know, Long Island, you know, just to give you an example here, from, from, so from reference, my block on Long Island where I grew up in Massapequa had four homes for sale. We had these people from Manhattan that were very, very wealthy people. They bought two of the houses on my block. Two of the houses. It's crazy. And they just, because they just want to get out and they want, and so the public schools on Long Island and the private schools on Long Island are dealing with so many, like an influx of so many kids, like they don't know what to do with them. You know? So I think a lot of people are moving out to the boroughs, uh, you know, Nassau, Suffolk and the boroughs like Brooklyn. But I do think that whoever's moving out of Manhattan, there's going to be someone to come in and replace it. Right. You know, you have so many vacant apartments. you You moved recently, right? Yeah, I moved to Greenpoint. I got a great deal right in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful neighborhood, beautiful building. You think you, think you jumped the gun too early? I don't think so. I mean, with me, I'm a, I'm a minimalist. So I pay 900 bucks for my room. I, I rent the room. I, you know, I would never, maybe when I'm like 28 to 30, I'll probably get my own place or like buy something. But just to give you some perspective, the room I rented for 900 bucks was, was listing or going for 1500 before the whole pandemic. So I was talking to the landlord, very, very nice guy. 
this very Hasidic Jewish guy, nice guy. I actually know him through uh, one of the home healthcare agencies I work with. And he was saying that a ton of these kids that were living in all these yuppie areas of Brooklyn are moving out. They're going back to, you know, Ohio, the Midwest, because they lost their jobs. Because a lot of the kids who come here, they try to be actors or musicians, and they have all of these jobs that are like a waiter, a waitress. Right. Yeah, so, so that's, so that that's gets, what's an interesting thing with where, where like that part of Manhattan, if I think about Broadway entertainment, what like tourism driven traffic, right? Jobs, tourism support jobs, essentially speaking, is is where you really do. That's a second derivative type of thing. But I mean, you're 25 years old. And when I think about like what 25 year old really would want to work from home? Like, do you go like, do you go out? Do you go out? Do you go out for grab a drink after work with colleagues ever? Like, I mean, yeah. And all this strange thing about me, I, I don't drink alcohol. So, but sometimes I, you know, I do go out, I take clients out, but so I don't really have that perspective, but I do think that a lot of, a lot of people my age, they love the whole work from home thing, but I think it does get old after a while. Cause I mean, I, I was getting fatigue of working from home. I can't just sit in my apartment all day. I feel like I'm rotting away. I feel like I'm just wasting away and doing because nothing. Because work from home also means like you can't have a, it's part of the pandemic. So you can't have a social life. I think if you had a, yeah, you're right. if you were going out and working in Starbucks or if you were like meeting with people, I feel like work from home is different. But if it's actually quarantine or whatever, lockdown, like, yeah, of course that's, you're giving up a lot there. And I think, I think they're like, there's correlation there that's not necessarily causation but yeah you also obviously miss out on colleagues you miss out on learning from other people so i don't but yeah i mean it's yeah it, yeah it um i mean it just sounds like new york like everywhere and a lot of what your story it's it is i know the new meme now is a k recovery where the winners are going to just get bigger and the losers are the ones who are going to really struggle i feel like in new york too you have people who are dependent on these sorts of industries that are really in the crosshairs of the pandemic, that's going to be tough. But if the home healthcare industry has to modernize, you're in a vertical that's going to be fine. And so there's going to be that sort of bifurcation and that split, it sounds like. Well, I mean, when you see about this in your friends network, is it similar? Like when you talk, like your, your Wall Street buddies, you know, what yeah. are they doing? They're all, I mean, they're all working from home. Well, okay. actually, one, one of my friends, the sales and trading guys, they actually just went back. So they're, they're happy to go back because with them, it's, very, it's actually very difficult for, for sales and trading guys to work from home because they have to bring all of their stuff and it, it's hard to set up all that infrastructure like remotely. So this, the S&T guys were actually the first ones to go back from what I'm hearing. But Here's the thing I miss the most about like working in Manhattan during lunch, you know, you, I'd meet up with all my friends that work like two blocks away and we go to, you know, Bryant Park or something like that and socialize. I think that interaction or just getting a cup of coffee or something is so crucial, I think, to just living a normal life. That's why I think that's going to come back. I really don't think people are just going to want to do the work from home thing forever. I mean, maybe, and maybe I just have a different personality. No, maybe I'm I think you're completely outgoing, right. But... People will want to go to lunch in Bryant Park. And you, like, if you're 25, you're going to, I mean, you don't drink, but um, like you want to socialize, whether it's whatever you eat, food, hang out, grab a beer after work, whatever. So you, I mean, you are making a good point where that social interaction that happens, 
midday, you know, for example, just lunch is it's a relief. So what are you going to do? Hop on a Zoom call after you hopped on a Zoom call to talk to your friends? Like, are you guys, what are you, what, what were you using to keep in touch with your friends during the pandemic? Like you guys just talk on the phone, FaceTime, or you like, you, you, you did you do any Zoom socials? Yeah, just FaceTime. I mean, with the thing that just with my friends, yeah, just FaceTime, texting, calling. But at the company, what the, these companies are trying to do, which I'm not a big fan of, they do like these Zoom social happy hours, which if you're working with these people all day. And what I've noticed ever since I started working from home, I'm, I'm working till like nine o'clock at night and my manager's emailing me like nine o'clock at night. So I think the work from home, I'm actually working longer. I mean, I don't, maybe that's just me, but. No, no, everybody kind of feels that way that I've talked to. But yeah, continue. Yeah, it's like, and then they want to try to make it as normal as possible where, you know, everybody lets eat dinner together on a Zoom call. But it's like, you know, I don't want to see everybody all the time, like 24, 7, 365. That's why I think if you have an office setting, you can come in, socialize with your coworkers, and then go home and have like a normal structured life. Maybe that's just my personality. But the people who I talk to, especially the other sales guys on my team, they feel the same way because I'm, I'm the youngest by far on my team. And these, these people have kids, they have a wife and kids, and they're trying to do the remote learning. And they just say it's a total nightmare because they're trying to get their work done. They're trying to help their kids with the, you know, get their education. And it's just chaos. It could be, a, you know, sort of a chaotic environment. So I think, I mean, I hope things return to normal, in my opinion. And I think if I was a parent, I would have a hard time not only doing my job to bring income in to feed my family, but now I'm also tasked with the responsibility to educate my kids on my own. So it could be, it could be pretty difficult, I think, in my opinion, but we'll see. I mean, it makes sense. You know, we, we, we had this conversation when Justin was on and, you know, we got into the end of it. Like if you were 25, how do you build, a, how do you build a professional network even? Right. You know, let's say like, think about like, you know, you're talking about your friends who have sales and trading jobs or whatever. What, think about the, like the kid who graduated college going through the routine you just went through the last five years. Think about that. And think about trying to get ahead, get that first job, get that break. You know, like you've obviously relied on, on, on a, a classic go-getter mentality. You've, you know, people skills, you know, persistence to get out there and break into what you wanted to break into. And like, if you can't meet people, you know, you, how do you do that? Right. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I have a, a pretty big share of friends that also work in more HR roles. I had a lot of friends in Uber that got laid off, Airbnb. So what I've noticed is if you want to, if you want to, you know, to call it job security, you want to be as close to the money as possible, right? And this is what this guy actually at Abraj told me that. He's like, if you want to have a stable job and have a stable income, don't go for security. You want to go for being the revenue generator at the company because without sales, there's no company. So if you're an HR person and there's a big pandemic, you know, unfortunately you could be the best employee possible, but they're going to cut you out first because you know, you're the back end. You're not actually out there generating the revenue. So if you're a good salesperson, if you're a good employee and you're performing and you're bringing in money for a company, I think you'll have job security pretty much for the rest of your life. In my opinion, I could be wrong, but that, that's well, I mean, I it depends on what happens in your business. If the sales overhead is inefficient or too many people, and this goes back to, we, we, we've been having conversations about travel expenses for you, travel expenses as part of your job. Like 
Uh, is there a conversation with, with your boss on any topic where it's like, hey, you don't need to be commuting to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, you can save money by doing these number of calls on Zoom. Now, clearly in your industry, no one's going to be giving you that shit right now because of what's going on in your space and, and, and how hot that vertical is and the demand and, and, and the critical nature of, of you know, having a, a human touch to be able to uh, respond to your clients in this, in this environment. But I mean, I, like you said, people who are down 50% construction or consulting or whatnot, like, do I look at that space if I'm overseeing it and say, I can do more with less because I have these tools. And these tools always existed. But yeah, there's an element right. there's an element of sales which you have highlighted pretty well, which is always going to be about interpersonal, you know, dynamic people person skills. Like when I think about some of the best salespeople I've seen in my life, they sh- they come into a room, they command presence. You, you, you almost want to be like them when they're in there for those five minutes and they're doing their thing. Everybody likes them. It's it's an art and it's hard to translate that over zoom, like the charisma, the body language, everything. Right. That's a good point. But also, I mean, if you think about a company like let's say Atlassian, right? So Mark Cannon Brooks, his big thing is, you know, we don't create a sales team. We want to create a platform where and great products that sell themselves. So could there be potentially be 20 years down the line where everything is commerce focused and AI has adapted to a point where, you could just build a predictive model based on somebody's spend history to be like, hey, I'll recommend these products and services for you that are going to be so key and that are going to be so accurate that maybe you won't need as many salespeople. You know, you never know. So I mean, I think you, that's just, something- you, just, you just laid out a bear case. <laughs> that's pretty good. No, I, no, exactly. I mean, I, that's what I, I tend to think about because technology tends to disrupt every single industry. You know, back in the day, you know, car salesmen were making a lot of money. Now, maybe not so much. If you look at Tesla, I could just go online and, and buy a car online. You know, Damn so it, I Elon. Think- well, I know, but Elon, like, does every car company have on Twitter and build his brand? I mean, that's that's, yeah, that's what he's true. done well, right? Oh, I mean, sure. he gets he gets the credit for you can buy a Tesla without a sales guy. Well, I mean, yeah, there is a sales guy. Uh, and he spends 98% of his free time sitting on Twitter talking to just about anybody. And that's played a big part in how that brand has been built, right? I mean, he's engaged his audience and he's done it for free. I know, man. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, you I mean, know, we'll as, see. as a Twitter shareholder, it's frustrating too because you should get a performance fee on that. But, but no, I mean, it's a good point. Like you're saying, sorry, I cut you off, but the disrupting technology. No, I mean, it, it's possible. Like that's the, always the advice I've gotten is, you know, I, even if I'm looking back to when I was a kid, you know, my dad, he's a Long Islander, you know, born in Brooklyn. And he's like, if you want to live in New York, you got to get the job with the pension. You got to be a sanitation worker. You got to be a police officer. And, you know, that's getting disrupted now, too. I mean, who wants to be a police officer? You know, the pensions are, are terrible. It's not these tier one pensions as, as it used to be. Um, and it's a terrible, you know, work-life balance and all that. And now you go to have the telling you, oh, you got to be in investment banking and you have to be uh, sales and trading. And that industry has been in structural decline. So what I guess my point is whatever industry is out there, it's going to get disrupted in some way, shape or form. And if you're not always looking at that and having a perspective on that, you're going to get blindsided and potentially thrown out of a job. So th- those are sort of the things I'm looking at maybe 10 to 20 years down the road. So maybe I would want to develop more technical skills, you know, maybe from like a DevOps standpoint and not just selling the software, but maybe 
learning how to build out that infrastructure and maybe well, making are you my gonna, own Are you going to learn to code? Like I mean, I tried to do a little bit the, a couple of years ago. So it's, it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I know the basics of Python. Like I can go into Pygame and make simple games or even before Zoom Info, my lead generator is, is one I made myself, which was just a basic, e- which was a basic email scraper. You know, I would use a data miner to go on uh, Google Maps and I would export all the URL links, and then I would build the URL profiler to extract data out of those websites, whether it be, you know, emails, you know, company contacts, phone numbers, and export that to an Excel spreadsheet. So that's really, I, I sort of created my own Zoom info, but not like dressed it up, you know, as, as well as Zoom info has. But I think that's what I want to want to learn more is just be more technical. So I could just build out the infrastructure and maybe one day be in Atlassian where I could build something to where the products sell themselves. So I'm not out of a job. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. I think you're going to be just fine, bro. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I mean, look, whenever I run into any person in finance or any young person who wants to be in finance, I'm like, you know, go be in, go be in tech. <laughs> I don't know what, what you're thinking. Yeah. Or you could work at like a quantitative hedge fund, like a two Sigma or something like that and be a quant and you'll get paid really, really well. But I think the traditional aspect of finance maybe I mean, there's still very good jobs, but maybe, you know, a little bit in structural decline, perhaps. I mean, look, automation is always going to do that. But I mean, like, as you see now, I mean, just you can, we've been discussing this just a little bit recently, the IPO versus the direct listing versus the SPAC. And like at the core of this debate, even though he won't say it, is like cutting investment banking fees. Hmm. Yeah. So investment bankers make their cut essentially to provide access and to sell an IPO essentially to institutional clients who typically get the highest allocation because they're generating the trading commissions. But we're now in a zero commission world for the retail trader, right? I mean, fractional owner, do you have a Robinhood account? No, I, I use Schwab and I use uh, Interactive Brokers. Yeah, yeah I don't, good. I don't use smart, smart move because Robinhood is... Uh, if anything, but proven to be unreliable at times. And I've seen that with people who have dealt with it. But it's definitely brought a whole new generation into the market. Like, how long have you been trading stocks? Uh, I think I started when I was 18, having a <laughs> real like interest when I was 18 years old. That's yeah. pretty impressive. What's, what would you say is your best stock investment slash trade? Uh, Salesforce. I've owned Salesforce for a while, pretty much. I'd say since 2014, late 2014. Uh, and that's just been a pretty big core position for me. But I also think it's luck too. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, if you're making money in a bull market, some people can think, oh, wow, I'm a, I'm a pretty big genius. But I think I stumbled into, you know, how to make money in stocks, Bill O'Neill, Investors Business Daily, and their whole niche is investing into growth companies, right? High revenue growers, you know, high return on equity, high EPS growers. And that's pretty much what's been driving this market for 10 years. So is it that I'm smart and that I'm reading the paper or is it just because that's what's hot right now? You know, so I don't know. I don't know the answer. I like that. So you got, you got, that's the fact that you are willing to say, I don't know at 25 is fucking great, dude. And the fact that you own Salesforce, which you hate using, but is your biggest winner and you haven't sold it. That's also, it says, that you've learned something in terms of, uh, hey, it's so bad it's good that I'm going to own it, and that's how I'm going to I'm going to get even. Uh, that's uh, that's 
that's a great stretch. So you're happy this week, right? I mean, up 27%. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and I've owned Atlassian for a while too. But here's the thing about a, a company like Atlassian. It trades very, very volatile. So if I'm a Bill O'Neill disciple, you know, I'm constantly, you know, you in theory, you would have to cut your losses at seven at 7%. But you know, I believed in the story, and I think the CEO is is a pretty big part of my you know whole investment thesis and process. So I've pretty much owned it since IPO. Not that big of a position, but I think I've done pretty well. well um, but again, you're nine x. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I started my initial position in Atlassian maybe twenty six bucks. Yeah, I, like it, IPO, it IPO'd like twenty eight. I remember it's the last time I actually bought an IPO on the first day. And uh, it went down to what, like the teens, maybe. I remember it was annoying because, it, like, if you bought it on the first day, it pretty much went straight down. Initially, yeah, and I think all IPOs tend to, tend to do that, right? They form their IPO base and then they sort of run up that right side. But I think my worst investments, you know, I lost a lot of money uh, with like Caterpillar. I lost a lot of money with General Electric because I've been trying to chase sort of those value traps. And that's yeah. why I'm thinking in my head all the time. I'm like, look, I'm reading Investors Business Daily. They're going to get me in the stocks that are going to move. But, you know, what if it's an environment where growth isn't favored over value? You know, now what do I do? So is it that I'm a good stock picker or is it that just because my strategy is, quote unquote, in at the moment? You know, I don't know. You know, so well, not everything can last forever. That, asking yourself that question puts you ahead of the game. I didn't think that way when I was your age. I just uh, thought I was, you know, initially a genius and had it figured out. And I mean, you do learn. I think if you have a market that drops, it forces you to rethink, recalibrate. And I mean, you can just read, right? It's all there. Hence why I recommended that book to you, because like if you look at what happened in the late 60s to early 70s and it compares so well to today. Yes, a lot of those companies were way ahead of their time, but like people are talking about like search engines, they're talking about uh, survey like being able to run a survey like SurveyMonkey. Like these were the types of businesses that were being built then. And when I look at a lot of the businesses of today that have been dominantly successful and I think back about being in New York, you know, 99 2000 and like when, when I first moved to Manhattan, I was, before I had even started working, I was on Wall Street, like staying in a friend's apartment, uh, like, I don't know, it was like 95 wall, 85 wall, I don't remember what, completely dead oh, air. Nice. Like nothing is going on at night. And how would I get stuff? Like if I wanted to get a DVD or like a snack or something, there was a delivery service called Cosmo.com at the time. And we would just, we would log on to Cosmo and like a guy would show up on his bike and they would, they actually had set up these like drop-off boxes inside Starbucks's. And you just like, like, and when Cosmo went bankrupt, I was like depressed for a little bit, but really that's crazy. Yeah. And that's like, know that. you know, like delivery service today, we had web van for grocery delivery and, and, and like gas. And like, there was, I was talking to a friend recently. It was like, you know, pretty much everything that failed in 1999, 2000 works today. And if you look, salesforce.com is, a 19, like, I mean, going back to you talking about, uh, what's his name? Tom, the paycheck CEO. Galsano. Leaving, working at ADP and going to starting paychecks. Like that cycle is the same story today. I mean, Larry Ellison's protege was Mark Binoff. Yeah. I mean, he, he was his best sales guy. He crushed it. He rose the ranks faster than anybody at Salesforce. Or, uh, sorry, at Oracle. And when he left Oracle to start Salesforce, it's the same time that 
NetSuite was started, like his his first check and his his biggest shareholder was Larry Ellison. Yeah, yeah, I, re- I read that in his book. Cap. You're right. That's crazy. So he he was a legendary executive at Oracle, and he just you know went out on his own, and this, and, and the cycle essentially with low rates and, and whatnot has been going on for ten years. And you are correct; it's been a good spot to be in the growth names. And when you look at a GE, a GE is I don't even know if you can call GE a value trap. It's just had so many problems. But Caterpillar at times <laughs> no, was, was, was definitely uh, would fall in that category. I mean, look, there was a cycle in the market before this where we were just people wanted to own emerging market stocks, you know, commodity names, oil and gas. Like that's just all been out of favor. Uh, forget the fangs, which we haven't we haven't touched on. But it's interesting that that your 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 best name is Salesforce. What name excites you the most going forward? I mean, Zoom Info, obviously, we're all going to be working on, like, I'm going to have to read that prospectus. I'm going to have to get it. Like, I'm going to give you my, my full take. I, like, you're the third person who's mentioned Zoom Info. It's like, uh, it's now, it's like my, my criteria for watching a new streaming service is I need to at least three influencers in my, like, sphere where I respect their opinions to recommend something because there's so much shit out there that, like, I just don't even bother anymore. It's just, it's very hard. But if I can get three people... Then I look. You've now you're now the third person who's hit us with a Zoom info, which seems to be yeah. Uh, yeah. The thing about Zoom info is I can give perspective on like that. I use it every day, right? And I, you know, in terms of the financials, I think they're growing revenue like probably what in the 60s, 60 percent quarter over quarter. When did they? When was their last earnings? I think it was. It was, it was just recently, I think like a week ago, seven right? cents. I think I think it was. I think they. Yeah. So if you look at their 2021 earnings estimates. I think it's, you know, the full year is up 50%. So that thing is probably going to get a, a bid from some institutions, but I don't, I don't know if there's many, you know, institutional names, like big, big names in it now, but, but it's possible. But I, I think things that excite me going forward, you know, we talked about briefly, you said spend management. So I think of like a Coupa software or something like that, or digital operations management, maybe like a pager duty that could probably get acquired by somebody. Uh, I think those are the two names. Uh, that I'm probably most interested in. Okay, I like your you know, thinking. I like your thinking. Yeah, that's really about it. Daniel, you have any comments on his in, in, in investing prowess here? Well, pager duty's obviously been on our minds for a long time. Coupa is an interesting one. I feel like I've never looked at it, but I've heard mixed things about it. So that's an interesting. Coupa is a stock when it IPO'd that I thought was a joke, literally. And I look at it today and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, if, if you're talking about spend management and if companies want to be better, you know, What the hell is spend management? I don't understand it. Explain it to me. Go ahead. Well, let's say, I mean, if we think about it, like if, um, like if you're negotiating like a contract for, if you have like pretty much like procurement, you know, you can pretty much get rid of that whole department in your company and so just have a, a piece of software like- to do it. It's like yeah. a, the new version of Ariba or Commerce One from the, from the, from the late 90s, 2000s. Yeah, I think what you're seeing now is just, I think during the internet bubble, it was everything was .com, .com. Now it's like everything is as a service. Everything, everything is as a service. This as a service, that as a service. I mean, I mean it's true. I, think- I mean, uh, uh, SaaS mania has been big. And we're, and we're and like, uh, I don't know if you saw Y Combinator's uh, demo day, but like everything that was listing there was like the, the Zillow of Egypt, the so-and-so of this. There was a very heavy X for X theme. And then there was a lot of Shopify. There was like a lot, I'm the uh, Shopify yeah, yeah. for this. I'm a Shopify for that. 
Well, another thought that I was having is if, if we're going to continue this craziness work from home forever, which maybe we will, you know, I don't know, you know, you're going to need, you know, security infrastructure. So if you look at companies like Zscaler, yeah. right. Uh, if, you look at, it. if you look at a crowd strike, I wanted to work for Zscaler. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't interview me, but I could get behind yeah, that. Oh, I could that sell huge that mistake there. I, I literally, we're going to have to ping them on that on Twitter after this. What were oh, they but, um, thinking? Well, yeah, I think, you know, anything in terms of like SD-WAN, so MPLS migration in a remote workforce, if everything is going to be remote, because I'm in, I'm in an office building that's completely empty. And there's usually thousands of people here every day. That means, you know, you're going to have to have top of the line security. You're going to have to have zero trust technology in terms of cybersecurity, because, you know, if one of these companies get compromised by an EMITED attack or a threat, you know, that could cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. If that happens to an AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, they could probably handle that pretty well. They just pay it. But if you're an SMB to mid-market company or even, you know, public sector or municipality and you get hit with one of these, you know, Emotet phishing emails and now they want $200,000 worth of Bitcoin, you know, you're out of business. You're done. So I think there's a huge value prop there for cybersecurity. So I think probably that's going to be maybe a growth sector going forward. Again, I don't know. I think the numbers are going to have to prove it, but it looks good so far. The, the problem with that sector, and I think you're completely on the right theme, and a lot of people are focused on that. It's all like it's never been a sector that's had a big winner. Put it that way. Like it's all it's always been a sector with you know whether like in 2014, you know the big name in cybersecurity was FireEye. Everyone was fucking all about FireEye, but. We've always had, you've always had your Nordens, your Checkpoints, uh, CyberArk. You know, there's been tons of names, both in terms of, you know, infrastructure and, and like threat prevention detection. But CrowdStrike definitely has attracted that. Well, I mean, Zscaler also on Endpoint, but like they've, they've, they've attracted that belief that you can have one dominant player, right? And like that's kind of the struggle in software. When you start paying 20, 30, 40 times sales for a name, you got to think it's got to be sale. It's got to, it's got to turn into Salesforce. It's got to turn into Twilio, right? Like you need to come in and dominate your, your space like Godzilla. You need to be Atlassian. I mean, like, you know, we've had, we, we, we've had uh, Justin on here. We're, we're, we're probably going to be doing a, an Atlassian mafia theme podcast soon. And Atlassian's definitely had a, had a, a ton of people come out of there who, who have also joined in let's call it the first self-serve software right like that's why they're profitable the margins are what they are when you talk about replacing the sales force when you think about that in cybersecurity, it's like i don't know daniel have you can like can you think of a name that's ever, like that's ever really like gotten you excited about being like you know a microsoft or or an oracle or now a salesforce or even even an Atlassian of its of its space in cyber. Where does Palo Alto fit, fit into that? Because they're a weird company that seems to. Well, I mean, Palo Alto fits into there. They, they talk shit about Zscaler for a living. That's what they do now. <laughs> if it pays. Well, they, do you think they could be big acquisition targets? Well, you know, if they're if you have a Zscaler, if you have a CrowdStrike, a Ping Identity, all these things, why why doesn't Microsoft buy them? Why doesn't a Salesforce buy them? You know, uh, or could there be, uh, do you guys think there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry? Well, look, that has not been like, you have not seen that, right? Like they haven't needed to do that, right? So when you think about on the infrastructure end and what's happened, 
big software, if we want to call them that, has been kind of happy with what, what, what goes on in security. Like they've, they've got their own elements of security to their own products and infrastructure. I mean, like when you talk about Okta as, as, as a security play, right? I mean, single sign-on has been something that essentially was given away by an Oracle or, or by a, a Microsoft. So when you think about what they've done as kind of standardizing it, it's nice to be a Switzerland. So like a pager duty, essentially, like when you're sitting in there in between everybody else and aggregating all these applications, that's also part of the challenge in digesting what's happening in software is you have so many SaaSes, like you said, as a service, as a service, as a service. And like, yeah. you're starting to see a lot of these as a service companies being like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to offer like I'm not a one trick wonder, uh, a one trick pony. Right. So like I need to offer you some sort of feature enhancement. And what do they look at adjacency wise? Like Microsoft Teams, like when you look at Slack, which we love, their biggest problem is, hey, Microsoft is giving you away in, in Office 365 Enterprise Edition. True. We and, use that too. We use Slack here. I forgot. Okay. Well, there you go. That's very important to know. I love Slack. So like you have Slack and you have Teams chat. Have you played around with both of them? Yeah, we use Microsoft Teams. We, well, here's the thing. We recently went through a merger. So one company used Teams. One company was all like Slack and, you know, different sort of suites okay. in, in that way. Right. So now they're sort of coming together. So we have so many different things flying around. But I, I like it. I like Slack. What do, you think, what, what, what do you think? What do you think you end up standardizing on? Slack or Teams? That's, I mean, maybe, I, maybe Teams because we already are running a Microsoft suite for everything. Uh -huh. But again, I think that's one of the most important things about SaaS, like everything integrates. So one of my other theses about SaaS in general was it's technically not everything is competing against each other. You know, if you look at an Atlassian, it's like how, how many different applications can we integrate with each other? So I think one helps out, one helps another pretty much. So. Yeah, but you just kind of described the, the annoyance of, of a Slack shareholder is that you said maybe Microsoft because we use them for other stuff, right? I mean, that's what, that's what, yeah, like, I yeah. mean, that's the, that's the challenge you're dealing with here. It's the, it's the same thing as when you, when you end up having, you know, you're subscribing to 20 different investment newsletters and papers and, and God knows what, and you start being like, you know what? I only opened I three of one. these. Right. I opened three of these in like the last month. Why am I paying these other 15? So let me yeah. just start canceling and canceling and canceling. So it, if you, it, like you're you're using you're using WebEx and you're and you're saying that that's very functional for you guys in terms of demonstrating your product, but Microsoft Teams, a lot of people are raving about their video. It's been less of a complaint about Microsoft Teams. Uh, sorry, less of a criticism for Slack in terms of them competing on chat, workplace chat. But it's been more like, hey, I'm like I can use this over Zoom. At, at some point, somebody in 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 the stack is going to look at who he's paying. And it's going to be like, well, somebody's got to go, right? right. And it's that's sort of kind like this, it's a standalone product. Like Correct. you would rather go to, it's sort of like the value proposition when I was at AT&T. Do you want to be paying 16 different vendors or do you want one technology house that owns your entire IT suite, right? Like yeah, Microsoft, so you're consolidating you Azure, the bill. You have, yeah, essentially. Right? Microsoft so like does the, that too, you know? The, I mean, like, I, I, yeah. And, and like the, the Roku, for example, people who get excited about Roku and in, 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 in OTT are like, look, all you're streaming on one bill, Roku is your bill provider, at which point you're essentially kind of like a billing specialist, you know, and you're taking 20%. And that's when you get into like, hey, are we, like, 
you know, Apple as a platform provider and all the fights going on right now with the Epic Games and so on and oh, so forth, yeah. where 30 yeah. percent, uh, the, the, the app store taking 30 percent transaction cut is too high. So and that's and, and that's where it's like, hey, I want to be more than a point product. Like when we when we've discussed PagerDuty, part of the criticism occasionally around it, even though it's very critical infrastructure these days, is, you know, you're a point product, right? You're not a platform. And like pl the platform word gets tossed around a lot in software, right? Everybody can't be like Salesforce has been at this for a very long time. He's rolled up a lot. He's consolidated a lot. You've got service cloud. You've got sales cloud. You've got the platform business. Like it's a diversified shop, right? And by the end, when you're buying an analytics company or when you're buying a MuleSoft, that's when you get into a situation where, you, you know, you're, you're covering everything in, in, in a Microsoft type fashion. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of cybersecurity, I think didn't Microsoft just buy somebody or like CyberX or something? I think it was like uh, for like their IoT business or something. I, I remember briefly hearing Daniel, about that. Have you heard anything about this? I mean, I'm sure that these, like for micro, when it comes to Microsoft and Google and Amazon, what they're tucking in and rolling in on a regular basis is it's, it's impossible to keep up with. What I think, I think it was like a, a cybersecurity solution that was like for predictability of breaching. So like scour the network to uh, identify something like that. I, I remember briefly hearing about it. I, I'm not too sure. CyberX, which focuses on detecting, stopping, and predicting breaches on IoT and large industrial networks. So yeah, meant to be built into Azure as a way to increase their security capabilities. So that's exactly right. Yeah, that, that's the only thing that worries me in the cybersecurity space is that and Microsoft has so much money that they could just build out their own solutions, right? You know, and go to their existing customer base and say, look, why don't you just use us for your entire IT infrastructure suite? I mean, is it possible? I think so. But I mean, maybe look, that's always been the story somebody. in software, right? I mean, like, that's always the story. These, uh, how do these companies all today exist that are doing what they're doing when Oracle, for example, was the giant of all this before. So, or an ADP, or like who, how, how, how does a company get disrupted? The ones with the most cash and the resources typically can't, they're not nimble enough. Once you get so big, you get bureaucratic. I mean, we've discussed this, I like with people at Amazon, for example. A lot of people look at Amazon and are just like, wow, it's so amazing. And like, like I need to find the next Amazon. But like, if you talk to people who work at Amazon today, they do nothing but like bitch about like how, like it's like a government job to a degree with a higher paycheck, right? Like 100%, it's, yeah. it's tough to get stuff done. There are layers of approval. There's pay grades. Like you can't get your, you can't get a, a raise beyond a certain thing based on a certain structure. Like it's, there's the, like when you get that big, it's comes with the same challenges every other company in the history of companies have had when they get that big. So unlimited cash and resources can at times be a hindrance to achieving your goal. It's, it's nice to be small and nimble. And we, we've seen this recently in the, in the marketing space, like, you know, like pivoting spend, you know, if you, if you were working with influencers and in, in the influencing space, like it's easier to pivot versus like a big ad agency, which is like run into a point now where like sports stopped and you hit a wall, right? And you've got like your upfronts and your commitment to certain things. And like, that's been a, something that the pandemic has also shaken up. So it does, 
I mean, it, it's always a risk, right? When you when you're buying the small guy against the big guy, these David and Goliaths. But at the same time, like that's if you make a good product these days, the ability to hold on to your customer has become easier. I, if, if I'm Microsoft, there's only a few markets of scale that are worth me moving into. When you talk about R and D and spending the time, because it's not going to move the needle if you don't. Like for them right now, it's really about defending you ever stopping paying an office subscription. They have to continue to innovate and add stuff to office to keep people using office so that office doesn't die. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think that I think that's why software names have, have outperformed any other sector is because Wall Street likes predictability. And all you could do is, you know, how many subscribers are you onboarding every quarter and what is your churn ratio? If it's very low, you know, that's predictable revenue. You know, so yeah, I think I think whoever created the as a service model is is a complete genius. And as you, I think you made a post on Twitter saying that the first as a service something was something with Xerox. I think you said it was like a <laughs> sort of like a joke you were saying. But yeah, I, I did do I did do a thread on the on the history of of the Xerox copier, which is you know the first uh, in my collaboration platform uh, as a service. Which is, yeah, yes, I, I, I was it was, I mean, I, I wasn't trying, I was trying to be funny, but I was also trying to make a point. No, it's true. It wasn't Howard Schultz, like one of the best Xerox salesmen. Didn't he like I, kill it? I, I think I, before he started the whole, you know, coffee thing with Starbucks, I think he was a salesman at Xerox. Yes, I do think you are correct on that. I'm not 100% certain, but that is something I, like that. Yeah. Let's, let's Google it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that part of his story. I know he's Brooklyn guy who made it big. Yeah, I was reading his. I was reading his book, and he. I think yeah, he was born in Brooklyn, New York, and then I think that was his first job out of college. I think selling copiers or something. He went to Northern Michigan for college, which is a school like right on Lake Superior. It's just a really funny place for somebody from Brooklyn to end up. I can only imagine. It's like a, I know. It's a lot different than even going to somewhere like John Jay, where at least you're in the city and <laughs> you're kind of in that environment. Yep, he was at Xerox. Yeah, I think I think in terms of college, if you if you're a New Yorker, if you go to a CUNY school and you go to one of the the better ones like a Baruch, you know that's a huge value for your education. I mean, you pretty much pay nothing. But you can get, you know, some bids into some pretty good, you know, career paths for sure. Look at you, you know, t- give, schooling us on history, huh? I mean, where where did you know this? Uh, where did you come across? What did you read his uh, his biography? Yeah, I read his book. Uh, very interesting. Nineteen seventy five. He was at Xerox. Yeah, and he said that's what sparked his like entrepreneurial spirit. And he, he the advice he gave in his book is that everybody, at least once in their life, should have a sales job. Because it teaches you how to get kicked in the teeth, how to, you know, take, you know, get so many no's and it's, it's miserable. You know, sales can be miserable, but it's also very rewarding. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't want to deal with that. And like a lot of my friends say, you know, I don't want to be in sales. You know, they have this very negative outlook on sales. But if you really put in the effort and you build the relationships, you know, I personally like it. I wouldn't want to do anything else, in my opinion, but... Yeah, there's this like negative connotation that anybody can do it and that you're not special if you're doing sales, right? Yeah, totally. Like but I don't have an not, ego. It's not, so that it's not a special yeah, skill set. But in fact, actually, to be really good at it, you, it, it, it takes a, a, a unique combination of skills. 
And it's the most critical thing for most organizations, like you said. Yeah. And I mean, I think with, with me, you know, all my friends, you know, Long Islanders work on Wall Street, went to really good schools. That's what I wanted to do, too. But I don't think I have that big of an ego. So, you know, they tease me. Oh, you're just a sales guy. But look, it, it pays very well. I really like the different products. You know, you get to really immerse yourself in learning a bunch of different things. You get to meet people. So I think if you if you'll be a good salesperson, if you just have very low expectations and you have zero ego. You know, Sasper, everybody, you have, everybody on Wall Street yeah. at the end of the day is just selling stock. So they're all salespeople. That's really what they were. It's really that they're just slinging the rock. Yeah. Well, everybody's, I mean, that's, that's true. everybody's sales at one point or the other. I mean, it's the, uh, you ultimately have to figure out how to tell your story and how to, yeah. And I think the way you take an open mind and you figure out how to move to where is an attractive place. And obviously in your case, you're learning a lot about the different things you're selling just the broader environment. I think that's, you know, the whole growth mindset and everything like that. But yeah, sales is definitely a good way for that to play out if you have the knack for speaking with people and helping them out. Yeah, I agree. All right, Sasbro, you've, uh, you've, you've, this has been more than we hoped for. Thank you for coming on. I mean, Daniel, do you have anything else? I think we think we covered enough. No, I think yeah, I think it's a good time to wrap. But yeah, absolutely, I uh, really and and this. we'd love to have you on again in six months or a year or if we're even still doing podcasting if that still exists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I appreciate you know you having me on the show. It's been really really fun. It's been you know really you're, cool. Uh, to, you're, you're right you know, up there as our best guest. I don't know. I think it's gonna it's gonna be tough to top you. I can say I can say I can say I learned a lot. Daniel, what, what do you have to say? Anyways, uh, I I won't put down our other guests because we've had some good ones. But yeah, no, it's really really enjoyable conversation. Got a lot out of it from a number of different levels. So definitely, thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, if you guys would have the pleasure of having me on again, I would like to. You know, really just learn a lot more from you guys as well. You know, Twitter, I think I've learned an incredible amount from. And I think you guys really, really helped me out in terms of the investment process of, of life. So I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks I mean, for having me on. Be prepared for the bear market. It will eventually come. I can't tell you when. If you find anyone who knows the answer to that, that that's very good information. <laughs> All right. I'll let you know. I'll keep my ear to the ground. Yes, exactly. Keep us, keep us in the loop. Yeah, if your office fills up, let us know. That would be that would be nice uh, uh, day to day uh, the, the intel. Absolutely. All right, guys, I'll keep you posted. And thanks again. Appreciate it. Take care. Right. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish a new episode every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd be really grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you again for listening and see you next week.